Section 15 of Tales of Three Hemispheres. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ed Humple. Tales of Three Hemispheres by Lord Dunsany. Beyond the Fields We Know. Third Tale The Avenger of Perdon Daris. I was rowing on the Thames not many days after my return from the Yann, and drifting eastwards with the fall of the tide away from Westminster Bridge, near which I had hired my boat. All kinds of things were on the water with me, sticks drifting and huge boats, and I was watching, so absorbed in the traffic of that great river that I did not notice I had come to the city until I looked up and saw that part of the embankment that is nearest to Go-By Street. And then I suddenly wondered what befell Singani, for there was a stillness about his ivory palace when I passed it by, which made me think that he had not then returned. And though I had seen him go forth with his terrific spear, and mighty elephant-hunter though he was, yet his was a fearful quest, for I knew that it was none other than to avenge Perdon Daris by slaying that monster with the single tusk who had overthrown it suddenly in a day. So I tied up my boat as soon as I came to some steps, and landed and left the embankment, and about the third street I came to I began to look for the opening of Gobai Street. It is very narrow. You hardly notice it at first, but there it was, and soon I was in the old man's shop. But a young man leaned over the counter. He had no information to give me about the old man. He was sufficient in himself. As to the little old door in the back of the shop, we know nothing about that, sir. So I had to talk to him and humor him. He had for sale on the counter an instrument for picking up a lump of sugar in a new way. He was pleased when I looked at it, and he began to praise it. I asked him what was the use of it, and he said that it was of no use, but that it had only been invented a week ago, and was quite new, and was made of real silver, and was being very much bought. But all the while I was straying toward the back of the shop. When I inquired about the idols there, he said they were some of the season's novelties and were a choice selection of mascots. And while I made a pretense of selecting one, I suddenly saw the wonderful old door. I was through it at once, and the young shopkeeper after me. No one was more surprised than he when he saw the street of grass and the purple flowers on it. He ran across in his frock-coat to the opposite pavement, and only just stopped in time, for the world ended there. Looking downward over the pavement's edge, he saw, instead of accustomed kitchen windows, white clouds and a wide blue sky. I led him to the old back door of the shop, looking pale and in need of air, and pushed him lightly, and he went limply through, for I thought the air was better for him on the side of the street that he knew. As soon as the door was shut on that astonished man, I turned to the right and went along the street till I saw the gardens and the cottages and a little red patch moving in a garden, which I knew to be the old witch wearing her shawl. "'Come for a change of illusion again,' she said. "'I have come from London,' I said. "'And I want to see Singani. I want to go to his ivory palace over the Elfin Mountains where the Amethyst Precipice is.' 
"'Nothing like changing your illusions,' she said, "'or you grow tired. "'London's a fine place, "'but one wants to see the Elfin Mountains sometimes.' "'Then you know London?' I said. "'Of course I do,' she said. "'I can dream as well as you. "'You are not the only person that can imagine London.' "'Men were toiling dreadfully in her garden. "'It was in the heat of the day, and they were digging with spades.' She suddenly turned from me to beat one of them over the back with a long black stick that she carried. "'Even my poets go to London sometimes,' she said to me. "'Why did you beat that man?' I said. "'To make him work,' she answered. "'But he is tired,' I said. "'Of course he is,' said she. And I looked and saw that the earth was difficult and dry, and that every spadeful that the tired men lifted was full of pearls.' but some men sat quite still, and watched the butterflies that flitted about the garden, and the old witch did not beat them with her stick. And when I asked her who the diggers were, she said, These are my poets. They are digging for pearls. And when I asked her what so many pearls were for, she said, To feed the pigs, of course. But do the pigs like pearls? I said to her. Of course they don't, she said and I would have pressed the matter further, but the old black cat had come out of the cottage and was looking at me whimsically and saying nothing, so that I knew I was asking silly questions. And I asked instead why some of the poets were idle and were watching butterflies without being beaten. And she said, The butterflies know where the pearls are hidden, and they are waiting for one to alight above the buried treasure. They cannot dig until they know where to dig. And all of a sudden a fawn came out of a rhododendron forest and began to dance upon a disc of bronze, in which a fountain was set, and the sound of his two hooves dancing on the bronze was beautiful as bells. "'Tea bell,' said the witch, and all the poets threw down their spades and followed her into the house, and I followed them. But the witch and all of us followed the black cat, who arched his back and lifted his tail, and walked along the garden path of blue enameled tiles, through the black-thatched porch and the open oaken door, and into a little room where tea was ready. And in the garden the flowers began to sing, and the fountain tinkled on the disk of bronze. And I learned that the fountain came from an otherwise unknown sea, and sometimes it threw gilded fragments up from the wrecks of unheard-of galleons, foundered in storms of some sea that was nowhere in the world or battered to bits in wars waged with we know not whom. Some said that it was salt because of the sea, and others that it was salt with mariners' tears. And some of the poets took large flowers out of vases and threw their petals all about the room, and others talked two at a time, and others sang. Why, they are only children after all, I said. Only children, repeated the old witch who was pouring out cowslip wine. "'Only children,' said the old black cat, and everyone laughed at me. "'I sincerely apologize,' I said. "'I did not mean to say it. I did not intend to insult anyone.' "'Why, he knows nothing at all,' said the old black cat, and everybody laughed till the poets were put to bed. And then I took one look at the fields we know, and turned to the other window that looks on the elfin mountains. And the evening looked like a sapphire. 
and I saw my way, though the fields were growing dim, and when I found it I went downstairs, and through the witch's parlour, and out of doors, and came that night to the palace of Singanee. Lights glittered through every crystal slab, and all were uncurtained in the palace of ivory. The sounds were those of a triumphant dance. Very haunting indeed was the booming of a bassoon, and like the dangerous advance of some galloping beast were the blows wielded by a powerful man on the huge, sonorous drum. It seemed to me, as I listened, that the contest of Singanee with the more than elephantine destroyer of Perdondaris had already been set to music. And as I walked in the dark along the amethyst precipice, I suddenly saw across it a curved white bridge. It was one ivory tusk, and I knew it for the triumph of Singanee. I knew at once that this curved mass of ivory that had been dragged by ropes to bridge the abyss was the twin of the ivory gate that once Perdondaris had, and had itself been the destruction of that once famous city, towers and walls and people. Already men had begun to hollow it and to carve human figures in life-size along its sides. I walked across it, and halfway across, at the bottom of the curve, I met a few of the carvers fast asleep. On the opposite cliff of the palace lay the thickest end of the tusk, and I came down a ladder which leaned against the tusk, for they had not yet carved steps. Outside the ivory palace it was as I had supposed, and the sentry at the gate slept heavily. And though I asked of him permission to enter the palace, he only muttered a blessing on Singanee, and fell asleep again. It was evident that he had been drinking Bach. Inside the ivory hall I met with servitors, who told me that any stranger was welcome there that night, because they extolled the triumph of Singanee, and they offered me Bach to drink to commemorate the splendor, but I did not know its power, or whether a little or much prevailed over a man, so that I said I was under an oath to a god to drink nothing beautiful, and they asked me if he could not be appeased by a prayer, and I said, in no wise, and went towards the dance. And they commiserated me, and abused that god bitterly, thinking to please me thereby, and then they fell to drinking Bach to the glory of Singanee. Outside the curtains that hung before the dance, there stood a chamberlain, and when I told him that though a stranger there, yet I was well known to Mung and Shish and Kib, the gods of Pagana, whose signs I made, he bade me ample welcome. Therefore I questioned him about my clothes, asking if they were not unsuitable to so august an occasion, and he swore by the spear that had slain the destroyer of Perdondaris that Singanee would think it a shameful thing that any stranger not unknown to the gods should enter the dancing hall unsuitably clad. And therefore he led me to another room, and took silken robes out of an old sea-chest of black and seamy oak with green copper hasps that were set with a few pale sapphires, and requested me to choose a suitable robe. And I chose a bright green robe, with an under-robe of light blue, which was seen here and there, and a light blue sword-belt. I also wore a cloak that was dark purple with two thin strips of dark blue along the border, and a row of large dark sapphires sewn along the purple between them. It hung down from my shoulders behind me. Nor would the Chamberlain of Singanee let me take any less than this, for he said that not even a stranger on that night 
could be allowed to stand in the way of his master's munificence, which he was pleased to exercise in honor of his victory. As soon as I was attired we went to the dancing hall, and the first thing that I saw in that tall, scintillant chamber was the huge form of Singanee standing among the dancers and the heads of the men no higher than his waist. Bare were the huge arms that had held the spear that had avenged Perdondaris. The chamberlain led me to him, and I bowed, and said that I gave thanks to the gods to whom he looked for protection. And he said that he had heard my gods well spoken of, by those accustomed to pray, but this he said only of courtesy, for he knew not whom they were. Singani was simply dressed, and only wore on his head a plain gold band to keep his hair from falling over his forehead. The ends of the gold were tied in the back with a bow of purple silk. But all his queens wore crowns of great magnificence, though whether they were crowned as the queens of Singani, or whether queens were attracted there from the thrones of distant lands by the wonder of him and the splendor, I do not know. All there wore silken robes of brilliant colors, and the feet of all were bare and very shapely, for the custom of boots was unknown in those regions. And when they saw that my big toes were deformed, in the manner of Europeans, turning inwards toward the others instead of being straight, one or two asked sympathetically if an accident had befallen me. And rather than tell them truly that deforming out big toes was our custom and our pleasure, I told them that I was under the curse of a malignant god, at whose feet I had neglected to offer berries in infancy. And to some extent I justified myself, for convention is a god though his ways are evil, and had I told them the truth I would not have been understood. They gave me a lady to dance with who was of marvelous beauty. She told me that her name was Saranura, a princess from the north, who had been sent as tribute to the palace of Singani. And partly she danced as Europeans dance, and partly as the fairies of the waste who lure, as legend has it, lost travellers to their doom. And if I could get thirty heathen men out of fantastic lands, with their long black hair and little elfin eyes and instruments of music even unknown to Nebuchadnezzar the king, and if I could make them play those tunes that I heard in the long ivory palace on some lawn, gentle reader, at evening, near your house, then you would understand the beauty of Saranura, and the blaze of light and color in that stupendous hall, and the lithesome movement of those mysterious queens that danced around Singani. Then, gentle reader, you would be gentle no more, but the thoughts that run like leopards over the far free lands would come leaping into your head, even if it were London, yes, even in London. You would rise up then, and beat your hands on the wall with all its pretty pattern of flowers, in the hope that the bricks might break and reveal the way to that palace of ivory, by the amethyst gulf, where the golden dragons are. For there have been men who have burned prisons down, that the prisoners might escape, and even such incendiaries those dark musicians are, who dangerously burn down custom, that the pining thoughts may go free. Let your elders have no fear, have no fear. I will not play those tunes in any streets we know. I will not bring those strange musicians here. I will only whisper the way to the lands of dream, and only a few frail feet shall find the way, and I shall dream alone of the beauty of Saranura, and sometimes sigh. We danced on and on at the will of the thirty musicians, 
but when the stars were paling and the wind that knew the dawn was ruffling up the edge of the skirts of night, then Saranura, the princess of the north, led me out into a garden. Dark groves of trees were there, which filled the night with perfume and guarded night's mysteries from the arising dawn. There floated over us, wandering in that garden, the triumphant melody of those dark musicians, whose origin was unguessed even by those that dwelt there and knew the lands of dream. For only a moment once sang the Tolulu bird, for the festival of that night had scared him, and he was silent. For only a moment once we heard him singing in some far grove, because the musicians rested and our bare feet made no sound. For a moment we heard that bird, of which once our nightingale dreamed, and handed on the tradition to his children. And Saranora told me that they have named the bird the Sister of Song, but for the musicians, who presently played again, she said they had no name, for no one knew who they were or from what country. Then someone sang quite near us in the darkness, to an instrument of strings telling of Singanee and his battle against the monster. And soon we saw him sitting on the ground and singing to the night of that spear thrust that had found the thumping heart of the destroyer of Perdon Daris, and we stopped a while and asked him who had seen so memorable a struggle, and he answered, None but Singani, and he whose tusk had scattered Perdon Daris, and now the last was dead. And when we asked him if Singani had told him of the struggle, he said that that proud hunter would say no word about it, and that therefore his mighty deed was given to the poets, and become their trust for ever, and he struck again his instrument of strings, and sang on. When the strings of pearls that hung down from her neck began to gleam all over Saranura, I knew that dawn was near, and that the memorable night was all but gone. And at last we left the garden and came to the abyss to see the sunrise shine on the amethyst cliff. And at first it lit up the beauty of Saranura, and then it topped the world and blazed upon those cliffs of amethyst until it dazzled our eyes and we turned from it and saw the workmen going out along the tusk to hollow it and carve a balustrade of fair professional figures. And those who had drunken Bach began to awake and to open their dazed eyes at the amethyst precipice and to rub them and turn them away. And now those wonderful kingdoms of song that the dark musicians established all night by magical chords dropped back away to the sway of that ancient silence who ruled before the gods, and the musicians wrapped their cloaks about them, and covered up their marvellous instruments, and stole away to the plains, and no one dared ask them whither they went, or why they dwelt there, or what god they served. And the dance stopped, and all the queens departed, and then the female slave came out again by a door, and emptied her basket of sapphires down the abyss as I saw her do before. Beautiful Saranura said that those great queens would never wear their sapphires more than once, and that every day at noon a merchant from the mountains sold new ones for that evening. Yet I suspected that something more than extravagance lay at the back of that seemingly wasteful act of tossing sapphires into an abyss, for there were in the depths of it those two dragons of gold, of whom nothing seemed to be known. And I thought, and I think so still, that Singanee, 
terrific though he was in war with the elephants, from whose tusks he had built his palace, well knew and even feared those dragons in the abyss, and perhaps valued those priceless jewels less than he valued his queens, and that he to whom so many lands paid beautiful tribute out of their dread of his spear, himself paid tribute to the golden dragons. Whether those dragons had wings I could not see, nor, if they had, could I tell if they could bear that weight of solid gold from the abyss, nor by what pass they could crawl from it did I know. And I know not what use to a golden dragon should sapphires be, or a queen. Only it seemed strange to me that so much wealth of jewels should be thrown by command of a man who had nothing to fear, to fall flashing and changing their colors at dawn into an abyss. I do not know how long we lingered there, watching the sunrise on those miles of amethyst. And it is strange that that great and famous wonder did not move me more than it did. But my mind was dazzled by the fame of it, and my eyes were actually dazzled by the blaze, and, as often happens, I thought more of little things, and remember watching the daylight in the solitary sapphire that Saranura had, and that she wore upon her finger in a ring. Then, the dawn wind being all about her, she said that she was cold, and turned back to the ivory palace. And I feared that we might never meet again, for time moves differently over the lands of dream than over the fields we know, like ocean currents going different ways and bearing drifting ships. And at the doorway of the ivory palace I turned to say farewell, and yet I found no words that were suitable to say. And often now, when I stand in other lands, I stop and think of many things to have said. Yet all I said was, Perhaps we shall meet again. And she said that it was likely that we should often meet, for this was a little thing for the gods to permit, not knowing that the gods of the lands of dream have little power upon the fields we know. Then she went in through the doorway, and having exchanged for my own clothes again the raiment that the chamberlain had given me, I turned from the hospitality of mighty Singanee and set my face toward the fields we know. I crossed that enormous tusk that had been the end of Perdondaris and met the artist carving it as I went, and some by way of greeting as I passed extolled Singanee, and in answer I gave honor to his name. Daylight had not penetrated wholly to the bottom of the abyss, but the darkness was giving place to a purple haze, and I could faintly see one golden dragon there. Then looking once toward the ivory palace, and seeing no one at the windows, I turned sorrowfully away, and going by the way that I knew, passed through the gap in the mountains, and down their slopes, till I came again in sight of the witch's cottage. And as I went to the upper window to look for the fields we know, the witch spoke to me, but I was cross, as one newly waked from sleep, and would not answer her. Then the cat questioned me as to whom I had met, and I answered him that in the fields we know cats kept their place and did not speak to man. And then I came downstairs and walked straight out of the door, heading for Go-By Street. "'You are going the wrong way,' the witch called through the window. And indeed, I had sooner gone back to the ivory palace again. But I had no right to trespass any further on the hospitality of Singanee and one cannot stay always in the lands of dream. 
And what knowledge had that old witch of the call of the fields we know, or the little though many snares that bind our feet therein? So I paid no heed to her, but kept on, and came to Go-By Street. I saw the house with the green door some way up the street, but thinking that the near end of the street was closer to the embankment where I had left my boat, I tried the first door I came to, a cottage thatched like the rest, with little gold spires along the roof ridge, and strange birds sitting there and preening marvellous feathers. The door opened, and to my surprise I found myself in what seemed like a shepherd's cottage. A man who was sitting on a log of wood in a low dark room said something to me in an alien language. I muttered something and hurried through to the street. The house was thatched in front as well as behind. There were not golden spires in front, no marvellous birds, but there was no pavement. There was a row of houses, byres, and barns, but no other sign of a town. Far off I saw one or two little villages. Yet there was the river, and no doubt the Thames, for it was the width of the Thames and had the curves of it, if you can imagine the Thames in that particular spot without a city around it, without any bridges, and the embankment fallen in. I saw that there had happened to me permanently, and in the light of day some such thing as happens to a man, but to a child more often, when he awakes before morning in some strange room, and sees a high grey window where a door ought to be, and unfamiliar objects in wrong places, and though knowing where he is, yet knows not how it can be that the place should look like that. A flock of sheep came by me presently looking the same as ever but the man who led them had a wild, strange look. I spoke to him, and he did not understand me. Then I went down to the river to see if my boat was there, and at the very spot where I had left it, in the mud, for the tide was low, I saw a half-buried piece of blackened wood that might have been part of a boat, but I could not tell. I began to feel that I had missed the world. It would be a strange thing to travel from far away to see London and not be able to find it among all the roads that lead there. But I seem to have travelled in time, and to have missed it along the centuries. And when, as I wandered over the grassy hills, I came on a wattled shrine that was thatched with straw, and saw a lion in it, more worn with time than even the sphinx at Giza, and when I knew it for one of the four in Trafalgar Square, then I saw that I was stranded far away in the future, with many centuries of treacherous years between me and anything that I had known. And then I sat on the grass, by the worn paws of the lion, to think out what to do. And I decided to go back through Go-By Street, and since there was nothing left to keep me any more to the fields we know, to offer myself as a servant in the palace of Singani, and to see again the face of Saranura and those famous, wonderful, amethystine dawns upon the abyss where the golden dragons play. And I stayed no longer to look for remains of the ruins of London, for there is little pleasure in seeing wonderful things if there is no one at all to hear of them and to wonder. So I returned at once to Go-By Street, the little row of huts, and saw no other record that London had been except that one stone line. I went to the right house this time, it was very much altered, and more like one of those huts that one sees on Salisbury Plain than a shop in the city of London. But I found it by counting the houses in the street, for it was still a row of houses, though pavement and city were gone. 
and it was still a shop. A very different shop to the one I knew, but things were for sale there, shepherd's crooks, food, and rude axes. And a man with long hair was there, who was clad in skins. I did not speak to him, for I did not know his language. He said to me something that sounded like Everkike. It conveyed no meaning to me, but when he looked toward one of his buns, light suddenly dawned in my mind, and I knew that England was even England still, and that still she was not conquered, and that though they had tired of London, they still held to their land, for the words that the man had said were Averkike. And then I knew that that very language that was carried to distant lands by the old triumphant Cockney was spoken still in his birthplace, and that neither his politics nor his enemies had destroyed him after all these thousand years. I had always disliked the Cockney dialect, and with the arrogance of the Irishman who hears from rich and poor the English of the splendor of Elizabeth. And when I heard those words my eyes felt sore as with impending tears. It should be remembered how far away I was. I think I was silent for a little while. Suddenly I saw that the man who kept the shop was asleep. That habit was strangely like the ways of a man who, if he were then alive, would be, if I could judge from the time-worn look of the lion, over a thousand years old. But then, how old was I? It is perfectly clear that time moves over the lands of dream swifter or slower than over the fields we know. For the dead and the long dead live again in our dreams, and a dreamer passes through the events of days in a single moment of the town hall's clock. Yet logic did not aid me, and my mind was puzzled. While the old man slept, and strangely like in face he was to the old man who had shown me the first little old back door, I went to the far end of his wattled shop. There was a door of a sort on leather hinges. I pushed it open, and there I was again under the notice-board at the back of the shop. At least the back of Gobi Street had not changed. Fantastic and remote though this grass street was, with its purple flowers and the golden spires, and the world ending at its opposite pavement, yet I breathed more happily to see something again that I had seen before. I thought I had lost forever the world I knew, and now that I was at the back of Gobi Street again, I felt the loss less than when I was standing where familiar things ought to be, and I turned my mind to what was left me in the vast lands of dream, and thought of Saranur. And when I saw the cottages again, I felt less lonely, even at the thought of the cat, though he generally laughed at the things I said. And the first thing that I saw when I saw the witch was that I had lost the world, and was going back for the rest of my days to the palace of Singani. And the first thing she said was, Why, you've been through the wrong door. Quite kindly, for she saw how unhappy I looked. And I said, Yes, but it's all the same street. The whole street's altered, and London's gone, and the people I used to know, and the houses I used to rest in, and everything and I'm tired. What did you want to go through the wrong door for? she said. Oh, that made no difference, I said. Oh, didn't it? she said, in a contradictory way. Well, I wanted to get to the near end of the street, so as to find my boat quickly by the embankment, and now my boat, 
and the embankment and and some people are always in such a hurry said the old cat and i felt too unhappy to be angry and i said nothing more and the old witch said now which way do you want to go and she was talking rather like a nurse to a small child and i said i have nowhere to go and she said would you rather go home or go to the ivory palace of singani and i said i've got a headache and i don't want to go anywhere and i'm tired of the lands of dream then suppose you try going in through the right door she said that's no good i said everyone's dead and gone and they're selling buns there what do you know about time she said nothing answered the old black cat though nobody spoke to him run along said the old witch so i turned and trudged away to go by street again i was very tired what does he know about anything said the old black cat behind me i knew what he was going to say next he waited a moment and then said nothing when i looked over my shoulder he was strutting back to the cottage and when i got to go by street i listlessly opened the door through which i had just now come i saw no use in doing it i just did wearily as i was told and the moment i got inside i saw it was the same as of old and the sleepy old man was there who sold idols and i bought a vulgar thing that i did not want for the sheer joy of seeing accustomed things and when i turned from go-by street which was just the same as ever the first thing that i saw was a taxi-meter running into a handsome cab i took off my hat and cheered and then i went to the embankment and there was my boat and the stately river was full of dirty accustomed things and i rode back and bought a penny paper i had been away it seemed for one day and i read it from cover to cover patent remedies for incurable illnesses and all and i determined to walk as soon as i was rested in all the streets i knew and to call on all the people i had ever met and to be content for long with the fields we know End of section 15 End of Tales of Three Hemispheres by Lord Dunsany